Good morning, Southwinds, and welcome to the first of our Christmas season services as we prepare to celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Before we get into our study of God's Word today, I want to mention a couple of things. First, we are now receiving our 2020 Christmas offering, and our goal is $15,000. We are planning to be helping local families this year with COVID-19 relief, as well as pursuing some projects that help local underprivileged children. We'll also be giving from this offering to support our missionaries in 130 countries around the world through the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Second, I want to encourage you to mark your calendars now for our Christmas Eve services. We'll be giving more details out as we get closer, and we may need to adapt our plans as we deal with the realities around us, but we are going to celebrate a Southwind's Christmas, and I really do hope that you'll join us. You know, every year most of us hope that this Christmas will be the best ever. Now, that means different things to different people, of course, but, but how many of you have already decided that 2020 will not be that Christmas? I mean, how could it with pandemic and lockdowns? Over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about ways that we can prepare our hearts and our lives for Christmas, ways that we can celebrate Jesus' birth and make even 2020 a wonderful Christmas. You see, there are some gifts that we all need to receive this Christmas, and these gifts can change everything. Today we're going to talk about the gift of waiting. And we see this gift in Luke 1 verses 5 through 25, which is an early part of the Christmas story. I want to encourage you to hear God's word as I read it. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord." He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man. And my wife is well along in years. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. 
When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. You know, there's so much power in this story. We meet two people, Zachariah and Elizabeth, two people who are waiting on God. They're praying. They're asking, Lord, would you give us a child? And that prayer had not been answered. They're old now, and they've been praying for many, many years. They've been waiting a very, very long time. Maybe as we step into the Christmas season, you can relate to that more in 2020 than ever before. Maybe right now you know what it's like to wait. If you pay attention to the Christmas story, you will discover that it is saturated with waiting on God. And honestly, that's a problem for most of us, right? I don't like to wait. I don't know about you. Do you enjoy waiting? I mean, I've never met anyone who, who like did recreational waiting or who thought that waiting was their spiritual gift. Heard someone say recently that we're a generation that burns our mouths on hot pockets, right? We don't want to take the time to cook a meal, so we just microwave a hot pocket, and, and then we can't wait for it to cool down, and so we burn the roof of our mouths. Am, am I talking to anyone out there right now? Maybe you? But when we understand that waiting can be a gift, when we understand that God so often uses waiting, we can learn to wait. We can receive the gift of waiting. As we walk through this story, I want to show you one thing we often feel when we wait, and then I want to show you two ways that we can respond to waiting. You can write these down on your message notes. Here's the first thing. When I wait, I can feel forgotten. Now Luke sets the scene for us in verses 5 through 7. We meet Zechariah, a priest, and Elizabeth, his wife. They're godly people. They, they love God. They obey God blamelessly, Luke says, but they don't have any children. They're waiting. They actually live in a time of waiting. God has been silent for 400 years. Since the prophet Malachi had written the final book of the Old Testament, no prophet had received a word from God. And among the last things Malachi wrote uh, dealt with this forerunner to the Messiah, and he is about to show up, we know. So they were living in a time when, when God seemed distant and remote, but he is about to make himself spectacularly known. They were also living in a time of oppression. We see this in Luke's first words, which say, in the time of Herod, king of Judea. You've heard me talk about this before, how Herod was a brutal despot of epic proportions. He was appointed by Rome. He reigned from 37 to 4 BC. And, and just a few things we know. He was brilliant and he was evil, the worst kind of evil. He was a legendary builder. He built palaces. He built the port at the great city of Caesarea. He built the temple in Jerusalem. But he was also a very violent man. One time when he was running short of cash in the royal treasury, he bought 45 of the region's wealthiest citizens in, killed them, and took their money. He was always paranoid about someone usurping his throne. And so at different times, he murdered his mother-in-law, a wife, and three sons. In his later years, he knew he was unpopular, and so before he died, he made arrangements 
for 70 leading citizens to be executed immediately after his death so that there would be mourning in the land. He was not a good guy. These were very difficult times. You see, this was Zechariah and Elizabeth's world. Zechariah was a priest, and Luke is telling us that Elizabeth is a priest's daughter. Verse 6 talks about their character. They're, they're both upright people who observe all the Lord's commandments. They do this blamelessly. And I want you to hear those words and let it really sink in. This was a couple that stood out for their faithfulness to God. Luke's not saying they were sinless. I mean, they were real people and real people sinned. But what he is saying here is this couple had just this, this trajectory of saying yes to God. They were truly devoted to the Lord. But at the same time, God had not blessed them with children. Some of you can imagine how hard it was for them because you know what it's like to experience infertility. And they just desperately wanted to know God's favor, but it doesn't feel like they have it. He hasn't answered their deepest prayers. They feel forgotten. And they felt that way for a long time. Luke says they're old. We don't know how old but they've clearly been praying for children for many years. They've watched their friends have children and then they've watched those children grow up. They've listened to who knows how many people give them advice. You know how this goes. Tell them uh, what essential oils they really need to take and use to help them get pregnant. They've felt the pain of people who wondered out loud if maybe they didn't have kids because of some secret sin in their lives. And You've heard that everyone back then assumed that God blessed righteous people with children. So if you didn't have any, well, they could just feel the judgment of their community. They could feel the shame. The word Elizabeth will use later in the passage is disgrace. They feel disgraced. And yet all this time, Luke tells us they were both upright in God's sight, observing all his commandments and regulations blamelessly. There's a great irony in the background here. The name Zechariah means the Lord remembers. And the name Elizabeth means God my promise. Together their names mean God keeps his promises. But it seemed like he hadn't kept his promises for them. A few years ago, maybe you saw it, the movie Julie and Julia came out. Meryl Streep plays Julia Child. And there's a scene where she and her husband are walking through a park in Paris and all of a sudden a baby carriage go by, goes by and Julia Child looks over and sees it and tenses up and her mood darkens. Her husband takes her hand, lifts it and kisses it. And without a word of dialogue, you learn of the pain of their infertility. All it takes sometimes is a car seat to realize that God has not favored you in this way. And this is the life Elizabeth and Zechariah live. Holy, blameless, upright, yet without children. Their disappointment leads to a second truth that we need to see. You can write this down as well. When I wait, I can keep serving God. That's what we see in Zechariah's life. One day, Zechariah is packing. He's taking off for a week. You see, most of the year, he probably works a small farm in the hill country of Judea. But as part of the division of Abijah, twice a year, every six months, he travels to the temple to serve. The historian Josephus tells us that there were 18,000 priests then, and each division had 700 priests. Most priests also served at major festivals. All hands were on deck for Passover and Pentecost, the Feast of Tabernacles. But priests had other jobs. 
you would devote about five weeks of your life each year to temple service. And, and, and that would be separate from what you did as a regular part of your life. So this story is picking up with Zechariah's group heading to Jerusalem together to serve out one of their weeks. Look at verses 8 through 10. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Chosen to do what? Burn incense. This is very important. Luke says, And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. I want to give you kind of a crash course in the temple of Jerusalem, first part of the first century. Today, if you're outside of Jerusalem on a hill called the Mount of Olives, you you look across the valley and you see the golden dome of a place called the Dome of the Rock. It's an Islamic shrine. But in the first century, if you stood on that same hill and looked across, what you'd see was the temple compound. It was called Herod's Temple because King Herod had poured in a ton of money and decades of work to build these massive colonnaded courtyards for the temple. Now, in this image, the, the temple proper is circled, and you weren't allowed in there. This is where the priests served. People had to stay outside. The priests would go into an inner room, uh, which was called the holy place. And here's a, a cutaway that gives you an idea of what it looked like. The holy place had different pieces of furniture, a table for offering bread, candlesticks that were lit perpetually, the altar of incense, and, and then a curtain. And on the other side of the curtain was the innermost room called the Holy of Holies. In that room is the Ark of the Covenant. Ark means box and covenant means set of promises. So it's the box containing the promises. The Ten Commandments had been in that box and that box represents that they were God's people and that he was their God. In a pagan temple, you'd walk into the most sacred area and you would see statues of the gods, Zeus and Poseidon and Athena. There's no statue of a God here. Walk in And there are just promises, almost like a marriage. I will be your husband. Will you be my wife? It was, I will be your God. Will you be my people? The Ark of the Covenant represents that God had chosen them. But in Zechariah and Elizabeth's time, it didn't feel much like they were chosen. In Jesus' day, there were two capitals in Israel. Jerusalem is the capital for God's people, the one we think of. But up to the north on the Mediterranean coast, there's another city called Caesarea. And whose name is embedded in that name? Caesar. It was named after the Roman emperor, and this is the Roman capital. The Romans had conquered Israel, and you were under foreign dominance if you lived then. You had to pay Roman taxes that crippled you financially. It made it very difficult to feed your kids and survive. And so in Jesus' day, there was this religious power of the religious capital in Jerusalem. But the true seat of human power was in Caesarea. You might say, well, okay, but at least when you're in Jerusalem, the Romans are far away. But that wasn't exactly true either. Go back to this picture of the Temple Mount. You see that circle in the upper corner? Do you know what that is? It's a Roman fort named after Mark Antony. It's the Fortress Antonia. And what that meant was that when you were in the courtyard below going to worship God, there would be these Roman soldiers up on the wall watching you. So understand what you would experience as a Jewish person worshiping in Jesus' day. On one side, the Ark of the Covenant, which represented that you are the chosen people. And then, just a few feet away, Roman soldiers. 
The reason they put the fort there was to squash any uprising in the temple area, to be able to get the soldiers there right away. So on the one side, you're the chosen people, but on the other side, no, 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 you're a third-rate country under the dominance of a superpower. On the one side, Ark of the Covenant, I'll never leave you. But a few feet away, there is this Roman fort which says we have been forgotten. Very, very forgotten. On one side, it's God has a plan for us. God's with us. But on the other side, this Roman fort. And it's, it's like, how can God possibly be with us when we're getting the life crushed out of us here? So try to imagine that space, the Ark of the Covenant and God's promises on one side, the Fortress Antonio on the other. You're living this life between hope and despair. Go back to verses 8 through 10. And I just want to ask you, do any of you know this space? On one side, you have the promises of God that he will be near, that he will be good to you, that he has a plan for your life. But, but all you have to do is turn around and you see the other side and it looks very much like you have been forgotten. What do you do when you're living in that space? That space between I'm a chosen and loved child of God and then I, I'm dying over here. Maybe for you that space is about infertility. I wonder how many people connected to Southwinds just in this last year have gone through the pain of divorce, the shattering end of a lifelong dream of a loving family. I wonder how many have had to deal with the loss of a loved one. I wonder how many face cancer and do not know what will happen tomorrow. How many have experienced a life-altering accident? How many can't find work because of the pandemic? And if we can't work, how can we provide for our families? And And so, so many are living between these two poles, between hope and despair. God has a plan for my life. God loves me. God sent Jesus for me. But life is so difficult and so disappointing right now. Some of us are still attempting in our 20s and our 30s, even into middle age, to outrun the lingering emotions and pain from a damaging childhood. And so we live perpetually, it seems, between hope and despair. By the way, when you read this next set of verses, I just want to say to you, this is a dangerous space for your soul. People lose their faith here all the time. They believe God loves them, that he has a plan for their lives, that he sent Jesus for them, that in the end they will will see God's goodness unfold in a hundred unexpected ways. But right now there is this mess that comes cascading in and it is a dangerous space for your heart. This space where belief battles unbelief, where you wonder what will get the upper hand. Hope that God will show his goodness in some way downstream or maybe is this just all a pipe dream? People lose their faith in this space, and I hope this isn't you. I hope that the pressures you experience, the disappointments you face, they all push you to the Father and do not drive you away. I hope that you experience his goodness even in the middle of pain, and I hope that for you, hope will prevail. Let's go back to the story of Zechariah. The lot is cast. He's selected to light incense in the holy place. And you may not know this, but scholars tell us that you could do this only once in your life. It was actually a very rare occurrence, and not everyone got to do it. And what that means is that this was one of the most important days in Zachariah's life. 
Today, we, we usually get incense and sticks or maybe cones, but for him, it was different. You, you would bring in these coals and then you would take this powdered incense and you would dump it over the coals and there would be this cloud of smoke that would ascend. Verse 10 says that all the assembled worshipers were praying outside and the idea is that the priest goes in and he lights the incense and the smoke goes up and, and it's like your prayers are going up to God with the smoke. It was beautiful imagery. And I think that a lot of people outside who can see Fortress Antonia and the Roman soldiers, I think a lot of those people right then are praying that God would someday deliver and that they still had hope. They were still waiting for their deliverer to come. But something interesting happens. I'm sure Zachariah goes in and he's probably thinking, I can't wait to get home and tell Elizabeth. She'll never believe what I was chosen for. I got to light the incense. But then in verse 11, everything changes. And we see here our, our third truth. Write this one down. When I wait, I can keep trusting God. Look what verse 11 says. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zacharias saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zachariah. You ever notice that the first thing angels almost always say is do not be afraid? I mean, angels have to say do not be afraid a lot. You might ask why. Well, it's because they are incredible supernatural spiritual beings who live in realms beyond our imaginations. They do not at all look like they belong in a precious moments figurine set. They are beautiful, powerful, magnificent creatures who serve an awesome God. And they cause fear when people see them. Go back to the story. Luke writes, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Now, verse 16 is very significant. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, Elijah was a great prophet who lived about 850 years earlier, and John is going to appear with Elijah's spirit and power, and this is what he's going to do. The angel says he's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. What's going on here? If you fast forward about 30 years, right before Jesus begins to teach and heal, a man named John appears on the banks of the Jordan River, and that's this kid. And John begins to preach. He's a prophet. He's wearing camel skin. He's eating bugs. He's living this aesthetic lifestyle. And he calls people to repentance. Change your mind, he says. Change your ways, because the kingdom of God is about to come to us. So get your hearts ready. And he was so powerful and convincing that on the banks of the Jordan River, people began to repent, to apologize publicly for stuff they'd done and stuff they shouldn't have done and stuff they'd let undone. And to symbolize their changed hearts, they would go down into the water and they would be baptized, representing God's cleansing of their sin. And because John did this, we know him as John the Baptist. 
And so put this together. Zachariah and Elizabeth, this holy and this infertile couple, they will be the parents of John the Baptist. They will be the parents of the guy who will prepare the nation's heart for the guy. The one who will prepare people for the one. See, Zechariah, he's told that they're going to have a child with cosmic significance who will prepare for the coming Messiah. But you'll notice that Zechariah isn't yet in a space to trust. Look at verse 18. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. It's like, are you kidding me? Have you looked at Elizabeth? I mean, how can this happen? How can I know for sure? And I want you to pay attention to the tone of this angel's answer. This angel is not happy. Zachariah is in trouble. It says, the angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. In other words, God sent me to tell you this and you have not believed me. And here's the consequence. Gabriel says, and now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. You want a sign? I'll give you a sign. You're not going to speak until this happens. Now again, Keep in mind where this conversation is taking place. It's inside the holy place. It's by the incense altar. And all the while, people are outside and they're praying and they're wondering what is going on. Zechariah the priest finally emerges. Look at verse 21. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs to them but remained unable to speak. So Zechariah finishes out his week of service. He travels back with the priest from his area and then we see the final verses. When the time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. Now, why in seclusion for five months of pregnancy? Uh, For a moment, the camera focuses away from Zachariah to Elizabeth. What's she thinking? What's she doing? And, And what she does is close the door to her home and get very quiet and very worshipful. She's filled with awe. Verse 25 says, The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. God has taken away, taken away the shame I felt for decades, the shame that people have put on me, believing we had sinned somehow, that we weren't devoted to God. God is showing us his favor. He is taking away my disgrace. And I wonder if that wasn't a five-month-long prayer. In these days, we are receiving his favor. In these days, he is sending his goodness. He has done this for me. He has taken away my disgrace. You see, while you wait, you can keep trusting God. But how do you do that? How how do I grow in my trust and my faith in God when I wait? I'm gonna tell you several things that you can write down, several practical steps any of us can take. The first is this. First, I remember that God works while we wait. You know, during the 400 years of silence where Zachariah and Elizabeth, remember, had lived most of their lives, God was working. God was working in the silence. And they didn't know that, but we know now. 
I've shared some of this with you before. We know from history that, that God was organizing the world to get it ready for his son. He raised up people like Alexander the Great who conquered the known world and, and then made one language, the language of Koine Greek, the, the common tongue everywhere, which, which enabled the gospel to spread in unprecedented ways. We know that God used the Roman Empire after Alexander, to establish peace. It was called historically the Pax Romana, and it lasted for a very long time. All across the the known world, there wasn't war, and the Romans then built a road system which made travel far easier, thus altogether enabling the gospel's spread. And just seeing this and knowing this reminds us that God can use anyone, and he can use everyone to accomplish his will. And so while we may be wondering sometimes what's going on and where is God and has God disappeared and is God even real, God is still working in the waiting. He always is. I love this text from Isaiah 64, verses 1 through 4. It says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, As when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you. Then look at this, do not miss this. Grab this with everything you have who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. While I wait, God works. And this is not just a nice little Christian sentiment to get you through a hard season. This is truth anchored in the unchanging word of God. He promises, he promises us, if you wait on me, I will work for you. If you wait on me, if you're patient, if you don't give up, If you just keep on following me, I promise you, I'll work. And you may not see what I'm doing. You may be tempted to think I'm not doing anything at all. But all the while, I'm orchestrating things for my glory and for your good. Friends, God works while we wait. And we sing that song, Waymaker, which has become kind of an anthem throughout this entire 2020 year. Those lyrics in this song that have grabbed so many of our hearts, say, even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. God's working while you wait. And so grab hold of that and cling to that truth. Now, it doesn't mean that your circumstances are gonna change in a minute. It doesn't mean you're gonna wake up tomorrow and everything's gonna be sunshine and puppies. It just means that while you wait, While some of you go home for Christmas once again this year and there's only one seat in your reservation. While some of you, you wait one more year and it's just you and your spouse and you thought this year would be the year that the baby would come into the story. You wait. We all have waiting. And I don't want to minimize anyone's waiting, but I do want to encourage you. We have a promise-keeping God and while you wait, heaven works. Never forget God has infinite wisdom, that God has all the information that could ever be known, that God is the Alpha and the Omega, and so he stands at the end and he makes decisions about the now where we have to stand in the now and we just go with the information we have. 
God, we don't know, we say sometimes, we don't know why you're doing this. And God says, that's because you don't know what I know. That's because you don't understand what I understand. And I am working together in all these things, navigating all these pieces to make sure that what we do isn't fast, but it's right, and it's good, and it's noble. Lamentations 3.25 says this, the Lord is good, to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. So you have to know today that we are serving a God who is other than us, and he's not just a bigger version of you or a better version of you. His ways are higher than your ways. His thoughts are higher than your thoughts. That's what Isaiah 55, 8 says. And so so remember, never forget when you cannot hear his voice speaking, you trust that his hands are working. God works while we wait. Second, who we become while we wait is as important as what we're waiting for. I want to show you something. Let's put this all together from Luke 1. Uh, Remember, what what did we read about Zachariah and Elizabeth? That they were righteous in the sight of God, that they were observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly? Now, Keep that in the context of their age, that they were well along in years, that when John the Baptist was born, they were old. What that is telling us is that they spent most of their lives living in the 400 years of silence. That's where they lived, and they lived there for decades. And during all that silence, during all that waiting, God was working, and they were becoming something. They were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. And so they kept waiting and they kept trusting, even when it made no sense to stick with God. They did that and so can you. You can become something while you wait. God wants to do something in you during your waiting. I wonder if, like me, you've ever noticed this about waiting. Have you ever noticed that when we wait, sometimes it feels like we're in this big zone of silence. And sometimes there's just like this emptiness in the silence. Have you ever noticed how the emptiness of the silence can often become a playground for the enemy? How this place is a place where he can convince you of things that are not true. How he leverages your doubts and your insecurities. How he plays on your fears. How, how he as your enemy begins to sabotage the emptiness of the silence. See, while we, while we wait, it feels empty. And in that emptiness, he begins to whisper to us. It's where sin even came to be. In the story that we read in Genesis 3, the temptation from the enemy was, did God really say that? Let me just fill this silence here with some temptation to get you to doubt. And, and that's what he does for all of us. Here's what I want you to see. Our job Our job is to fill the silence with things that reinforce our trust in God, that remind us of the promises of God. That's what we do in the silence. We act in faith. We obey in trust. Let me give you a few quick and practical ways you can do that if you ever find yourself thinking, I mean, I know God's working in the waiting, but what should I do? What's my job, my role in the waiting? Here's some things you can do. The first one we see comes out of when the angel appears to Zechariah. And look again, what did he say to him? He said, do not be afraid. What was next? He said, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. And so 400 years, 
nothing from God as far as we know. But this angel tells us that we can know that Zechariah must have been praying. He kept praying. He's told, your prayer has been heard. Well, when did God hear his prayer? God heard his prayer in the season where it didn't feel like God was doing anything. It didn't feel like God was listening. And so we can keep praying even when we don't know that God is responding. We can keep sowing seeds of faith. That's what you do in the seasons of silence. You pray. And imagine, imagine that if you just did that, I'm waiting again this Thanksgiving and now it's Christmas coming and this COVID season has made everything so much harder. Now I feel isolated and alone and I thought it was gonna be this way, but it's actually been that way and I am so ready for this to be over. What do I do in the waiting? You pray, you pray, you pray and not as your last resort, but as your first option, you pray. And then number two, You worship your way through the waiting. You keep focusing on God. Keep focusing on his goodness, on his faithfulness, on his power. You worship your way through praying. And then number three, you cling to his word, his truth. Psalm 130 says, out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. In your season of waiting, cling to God's word. And then lastly, write this down. Anchor yourselves in a community that will fight for God's promises in your life. See, when you want to bail, you need to get people around you that can call the enemy a liar when you're not sure he's lying. You need to get people that are in your crew and they will fill up the silence for you when you feel like I'm too tired to put anything in the silence. You guys do it for me. You tell me, no, that's not true about who I am. That's not why I'm here. That's not my future. God has not abandoned me. And then you can say to the enemy, now enemy, you don't just have to take me out. You have to take me and my six friends out and good luck with that. You see, we need to find community that can reinforce our trust in God. These are things we can do. Let me give you one more, one more step, one more thing to remember. While we wait on God, we wait with God. This comes from such an important word that's about Christmas. It's the word Emmanuel, and this is the essence of Christmas. Emmanuel means God with us, Emmanuel with us, El. God, coming from the name Elohim, literally, Jesus is the with us God. And so you must understand when you're waiting that while you wait on God, you are waiting with God. This is the power of Emmanuel. And I love in Matthew's gospel how we see that, how we read that. It says in in chapter 1, verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. This is from Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Friends, the power of this is enough to anchor you. No matter how long your season of waiting has been, 
Because the enemy's primary way to defeat us is to get us to cash in and convince us that God isn't working or worse, God isn't even real, that you're by yourself. And you know, if the enemy had a slogan for 2020, that's what it would be. You're by yourself. You're by yourself. Isolated, insulated, all alone. That's you. That's not you. That's not you if you have put your hope in the Lord. Because Jesus says, I have come and my name is the with us God. And so Matthew, Matthew begins his gospel with this. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to his son, uh, to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. And so therefore we see at Christmas the long awaited arrival of King Jesus, Emmanuel. But do you know how Matthew concludes his gospel? What the last verse In Matthew 28 says, Jesus is speaking now and Jesus says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. See, what that tells us is the bookends of the gospel of Matthew, the the account of Jesus, the Messiah arriving on planet earth, it, it begins and it ends with a simple statement. I am with you. I am with you. In the waiting when you can see me and when you can't. When you're aware of what I'm doing and when you're not. When your tank is full and when you're running out of gas. When you have a job and when you don't. When you're healthy and when you're so sick you don't think you will make it. I, almighty God, am the with you God. That is who I am. Lastly, I want to leave you with these verses a lot of us know from Isaiah 40. This is what they say. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Now, in context there, the people of God, they had turned from God and God had sent them into exile, but they're coming back now. They've owned their sin, but now they're wondering, God, do you even still see us? We know that you're real now. We've seen you come through, but God, we're wondering, we're wondering, do do you even know where we are that we're here because we can't keep doing this? It's as if my cause isn't even seen by you anymore. It's like I'm over here on an island going, hey, God, do you even see us down here anymore? And so many of us in 2020 are right at that place, maybe where you're shooting a flare gun up at heaven going, Jesus, can you even see me anymore? Because it's been let down after let down, failure after failure, not like I planned it, not like I planned it this whole year. Jesus, do you even know, do you even see? I want you to listen to what Isaiah's response is. He says this, verse 28. Do you not know, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. He will not grow tired or weary in his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. And so, yeah, 2020 has been a hard year. But maybe we could also think of it this way. 2020 has been a strengthening year. Look at verse 30. Even youths, 
grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord, and maybe your translation here says wait, those who hope in the Lord, those who wait on the Lord, the Hebrew word here means both things, and and it means to live in the tension of endurance. It's like, hey, how long are we gonna have to keep going, and maybe we should just give up, and that might even make some sense because I can't see what God is doing. I don't know that he's doing anything, but this word, this Hebrew word, kivah, to hope or to wait. It means I don't have to be able to see what God is doing to trust God because he's never failed. He's never failed. And he won't start now. So it may be completely foggy and I can't see how he could possibly work out his promises in my life right now, but I know him, I know him, and so I'm gonna keep following him. I'm gonna keep putting one foot front of the other. I'm gonna keep waiting on my God. See, that's what we're called to do. And when we do that, what is God's response? Verse 31 says, but those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. That's the promise from Almighty God. You're not gonna get strong by bailing. You're not gonna get strong by trying to work it out in your own wisdom. You're going to get strong by waiting on Almighty God, God who has all the information, who sees the beginning from the end, who tells you, no, 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 not that way. It might be fast, but it's not right. We're gonna wait and we're gonna do it this way because in this way, I get the glory and you get the good. Friends, this is our king. This is our king. So receive the gift of waiting. Wait well, Southwinds. And as Advent is beginning and we are rolling into this season for 2020, please do not believe the lie that you're by yourself. Let all the noise around us fade away so that we can focus on what is true. And what's true is that we have a promise-making, promise-keeping God who has never failed us and who won't start now. And you can be confident in him. Hope has come. His name is Jesus, and we don't have to wait for him anymore. We can know him and love him and follow him no matter what. That's my prayer for you as you walk through this week. If God has you in a season of waiting, will you receive that gift? Will you rest in his power and grace and love? He is here. He is the with us God. I'll see you next week. Thank you.